Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, CNN senior writer Juana Summers and senior editor for Policy and Politics at Recode, Tony Rum. All right, let's start the show. I'm not a senior. You guys are both seniors. Uh, Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Starting with a fun song and two fun folks in the studio today. Thank you guys for being here. Of course. Thanks, Sam. Juana Summers, who covers politics for CNN. Tony Rahm, who covers biz and tech at Recode, the tech news website. Fun fact that our listeners might not know, uh, you guys actually go way back, even though you work in different newsrooms now. We do, that's right. We worked together at a little place in Virginia called Politico for, I think, almost four years, Tony? Yeah, seems about right. And she didn't kill me. <laughs> we survived and somebody decided it was a good idea to get us in the same room together. <laughs> there Hopefully you go. We this up. There you go. Full circle. So I'm playing a very, very happy song this morning for a very particular reason. This is Oh Happy Day. Everyone knows this song. Yeah. So people might not know that this was actually a big crossover hit in 1969. It was a gospel song that hit close to the top of the pop charts, which was a big achievement for that time. Uh, the, the creator of this song is Edwin Hawkins, a legend in gospel music. He passed away this week at the age of 74. So shout out to Edwin and this great song. I almost played the Sister Act version. I was just about to say that. I was like, like, damn, I need Sister Act. I would do it for you, but I'd break your microphone. (laughs) Although, happy day, like right now. Every day is happy if you choose for it to be so. Tell that to Capitol Hill down the street. (laughs) Power of positive thinking. That's right. All right, let's get into it. We are each going to describe how this week of news and everything else felt in just three words. Juana. You can do this. Three words. I can do this, and I'll give the version my mom will actually allow me to say without reaching through a microphone and smacking me. I'm going to go with the S-hole shutdown. Um, Ah. As we sit here and record this, we are about 13, 14 hours away from the government shutdown. and usually Almost 10 a.m. right now on a Friday. And usually I'm a never-say-never kind of person. I don't want to say we're never going to get an agreement, but you guys, things are not looking good down the street on Capitol Hill. No one seems to know where the president is at on immigration. One of the scariest things I think I heard this week was Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell saying he wants to put forward something on immigration that the president would sign, but he doesn't he know, know what that is. And he said in a press conference, the leader of my party doesn't know, but as soon as he lets me know, we'll do something. So not only are Republicans not unified around something they think the president will sign, you have Democrats who have feel like there is a moral obligation for Congress to address the plight of these nearly 700,000 young people who were brought into this country illegally, whose status is very uncertain. That has to be fixed by March, and they won't vote for anything that doesn't include a fix for those people. It's all been very confusing this week, the back and forth and the who said whatever, whenever. Dems are basically saying, we're holding out for a DACA fix, to which Republicans have said... Not right now. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that's really poisoned the waters is this this Oval Office conversation with this vulgar language. Up until that point, we had thought that maybe Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois and Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina had come up with some sort of proposal on DACA. And they say they did. They said they, said they had something <laughs> yeah. and they had an understanding from the president because he said this and we heard him say it, that yeah. he was willing to take the political heat, that he was willing to sign a compromise. Fast forward a couple of days and Donald Trump is no longer in that position. He is no longer interested. 
did in signing this. He says it's not what he ran on. And he used some vulgar language that I will not repeat to describe people coming from a set of countries in Africa and Haiti and El Salvador. And I think that that made Democrats who do not want to see this government close even more firm in their position. They're saying we're not signing anything that does not help people from these countries. Yeah. So listeners, by the time you hear this, something may have happened, something may not have happened, but you heard no predictions from us. No, I'm We're not, not going to mess ourselves up. Not in the business of betting, but the Senate comes back into session at 11 a.m., so in about an hour from when we're taping this. And at that point, they will have 13 hours to figure this out. I will <laughs> offer one prediction, which is that probably we will be working all weekend. <laughs> I would not, like to align myself with that prediction. Not this guy. Uh, <laughs> Once we put this show to bed, it's <laughs> it's off to Grace and Frankie season four on Ooh. Netflix. No spoilers. I'm only on season two. Oh, it's such a good show. Such a good show. <laughs> Tony, you got three words? Oh, I have a lot of words, but I'll keep them to three. <laughs> okay. I would say my week in three words uh, would be War of Worlds. And it's That's for drastic. lots of reasons, okay. uh, literal and figurative, some of which Juana actually laid out here. Yeah. Literally, uh, it's only been a couple days since Hawaii officials sent out an emergency alert to countless individuals in the state oh, warning yeah. them of a ballistic missile <laughs> that was on the way but wasn't on the way. They had to send out a correction. Uh, it sort of reminded a lot of folks on Twitter of War of the Worlds, mm-hmm. the Orson Welles drama that was aired on radio in the 30s. An and amazing sparked. Tom Cruise movie. Mm-hmm. Underrated Tom Cruise uh, movie. <laughs> uh, they, <laughs> you know, 1930s uh, drama, Martians taking over the earth and so forth. And people were scared. In this instance, uh, I think it's a sign that there's a lot still to fix with, you know, the way the U.S. government uses technology. And when you point to the things that Juana just discussed with the fights over immigration, the war between the White House and Congress over the future of the U.S. government and funding the government and the budget and so forth, uh, when there are these constant wars over these big picture items and they take up all the time on Capitol Hill, things like wireless emergency alerts, which matter greatly to millions of people, don't get addressed. Oh, yeah. Well, and it's like... There are fights that you think are over that kind of rear their heads again. Like, I have been seeing net neutrality trend again. Yep. When I thought that thing was done. Yeah, net neutrality has been, uh, it it will probably outlast me on this earth as a debate (laughs) that can't get resolved. And this time it's a war of worlds between Democrats and Republicans in Congress, uh, Congress and the White House, uh, the White House Congress and the FCC, which recently (laughs) voted in December to roll back rules that require all internet providers like AT&T and Comcast to treat all web traffic equally. And now it's going to be a war in the federal court system. And we can deal with these fights, right? We, we, we can resolve the issue of net neutrality and what companies can and can't do if lawmakers sat in a room and started discussing it and wrote a law that was fitting of the digital age. But Democrats and Republicans don't want to compromise on a whole lot right now. And so here we are in a place where we're rehashing the same debate uh, that I was covering eight years ago, essentially. Oh, man. Yeah. This is, this is, this is why I didn't start off with happy days. This is, this is, this is, this is sort of... <laughs> My three words are one in three, Hmm. because the most interesting stat I saw all week was from this Brookings study on White House turnover in Trump's first year. They found that 34 percent of high level White House aides left the White House in Trump's first year. Hmm. That's about one in three. Think about if your office had that high of turnover. (laughs) <laughs> or does it? I don't know y'all's life. No comment. No comment. No comment. <laughs> but it, it, just, it was crazy. So this rate, according to Brookings, is triple the rate of Obama's first year, double the rate of Reagan's first year. And fun fact, usually year number two has even more turnover for a White House than year number one. And I found myself saying, OK, if we know that one in three staffers in this White House are just leaving, I wonder if the better poll question to ask 
voters is not so much do you approve of this White House, but rather would you want to work in it? Oh, man. You know, as like a policy nerd, it's interesting to hear that because one in three are leaving, but a lot of those jobs weren't filled, right? There exactly. are so many positions in government in you know the parts of the Commerce Department and the Department of Homeland Security that do really important things that matter to business or matter to American safety that just aren't filled right now. Yeah. Either they can't find people to take those jobs or the White House has been slow to nominate folks for those positions or they just don't want to fill them at all because they're just not interested in yeah. uh, filling those jobs because they want to cut the size of government. So you're already talking about a smaller pool uh-huh. from which one in three are leaving which is intense. But I had many of these conversations with people who were considering whether to enter this administration, Uh, folks who went back and forth on whether they should do it, what to do about the fact that, you know, maybe they were hardcore Republicans, but they weren't sure if they wanted to work for this president. Maybe they were going to go to the White House anyway. They were going to do the work they wanted to do that mattered to the country and then put on blinders when it came to some of the things that Trump was tweeting. And I think that we're still seeing that play out for Hmm. a lot of folks considering what to do with taking government jobs. Yeah, I think that's right. And the other thing that really struck strikes me is I have to imagine at the end of four years or maybe even eight years, what institutional knowledge is going to be left if you see people from year one just leaving in droves? One third is incredibly significant, especially with the vacancies that Tony mentioned. So I just I I think that really hampers the government's ability to do its job. So many of these issues that they're working on, they require years and years of work. So if those people are leaving, like, how does that work get done? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And also, it's not like they're just leaving quietly. (laughs) Several of these high level departures have been like that scene and like waiting to exhale when Angela Bassett like burns the car down <laughs> with all his clothes in it. They're like, I'm taking this whole thing down with me. I'm giving the tell-all interview. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to make the rounds on TV and be on SNL. Like, it's not just the amount of departures, but the very public manner in which they occur that I still find baffling. Yeah, and some of that's not intentional, right? We had, yeah. we had the Carl Higby incident mm-hmm. from this week where, you know, he was forced out of AmeriCorps because of the very controversial racist stuff that he had yeah. said in a series of radio interviews. This is journalists doing the job of vetting these folks that maybe the White House and these federal agencies should did not do. Should have vetted months ago. Yeah, yeah, they should have vetted months ago, but it but it really has real impacts on people. Like, going back to the, the jobs that are open, the White House is severely lacking right now in science and technology experts. And just... A year ago, when President Trump first entered the White House, they put forward a budget that pretty severely slashed money that went to the National Institutes of Health and Mm. went to the National Science Foundation and so forth. These are dollars that study everything from climate change to cancer research. And there are folks in government who normally do this work who are not in government right now because they have apprehension about the Trump administration. Well, no matter what, I'm still saying, oh, happy day. (laughs) (laughs) That's my theme for the whole show. All right, we are going to go to a break really quick. Coming up, we have a chat about the state of Puerto Rico's recovery. Also, my favorite game, Who Said That? You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll be right back. We'd like to thank our sponsor who brings you this message, Discover Card, who alerts you if they find your social security number on any one of thousands of risky websites. Discover believes there are some things that you just need to know. It's just another way Discover looks out for you, not just your account. And best of all, social security alerts are free for Discover Card members. All you have to do is sign up online. Learn more at discover.com slash free alerts. Limitations apply. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here today with Juana Summers, who covers politics for CNN, and Tony Rahm, who covers tech for Recode. Thank you guys for being here today. Thanks. Of course. Quick yes or no answer. Do you guys ever 
fight back or stifle your sneezes? Oh, no. I know where this is going. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. Don't spoil it. No? Yes. Wanna you do? Yes. Well, a word of warning to you. Uh, there was a story in the news this week. Uh, this report found that a 34-year-old healthy man basically broke his throat trying to fight back a sneeze. NPR's oh, no. own Colin Dwyer wrote about this, quote, in other words, by trying to suppress the full force of his sneeze, mm. the man literally ruptured his throat. The air that that sneeze would have blasted forth instead made its way into his soft tissue uh, as tiny uh, bubbles. How can you even read that? I'm so uncomfortable right oh, now. Yeah. <laughs> so will you promise me now that you're never going to stifle your sneezes again? I promise I will never stifle anything ever again. <laughs> <laughs> Now it's time for a segment that we call Long Distance. This is where we call a listener somewhere in the world and talk with them about their week in their neck of the woods. Today on the line, we have a listener in Anchorage, Alaska. 32 years old, Will Tompkins. Hey, Will, how are you? I'm uh, good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for being with us. You're on the phone with two of my friends, Juana and Tony. Say hi, guys. Hey. Hi. Hi. So it's like... 10, 15 a.m. as we tape this right now. What time is it for you? 6.15 right now. Oh, well, thanks for getting up early for us. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, you're welcome. I, I'm I'm slowly but surely turning into a uh, an old man, and I'm okay. usually up this early anyway. So. Oh, man. All righty. Okay. So what do you do there in Anchorage? Um, yeah, I am uh, a second-year apprentice in the um, local sheet metal workers union. Cool. What does that entail? You know, basically, the skills I'm learning are to build anything you want out of metal. Things like building HVAC systems, some ductwork for buildings, handrails, that kind of thing. And then it can also go into, like, architectural stuff, uh, siding for buildings, that kind of thing. There's a lot involved. Yeah, sounds like it. So we're calling you this week to talk about a story that I'm assuming is pretty big in Alaska. Um, This new tax bill that was passed recently actually opens up drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, or ANWR. Um, How big of a deal has this been up there where you are? Well, I mean, it's been a pretty big topic, geez, I think since the 80s or 70s, you know, (laughs) since before my time, really. Um, I know people have been trying to open it up for a long time. Once the word kind of got out that this was going to be part of the bill, I think there was a lot of anticipation that, you know, this this would be really good for the state. I think there would definitely be an increase in jobs, especially for tradespeople like myself. But, um, you know, it's just a question of if the oil companies are interested, if they think they can make money, and also for how long. You know, that's a a big question mark. Yeah. it's You know, I mean, to hear you say that, even the right now of oil and money in Alaska is some big unknowns. It's tied to things that you guys can't control. And the thing with this drilling in Anwar, it is still years away. So you really, really don't know how this will affect the state. You have two young kids, right? Yes. Is there any way to know how this will affect them down the road? Oh, man, that's a a tough question. Um, For me personally, I I don't know. Um, You know, like I said, it would be it would be money in my pocket right now, and yeah. so I can see a benefit. But there's a lot of ecological aspects to take take into account. There's a massive uh, caribou herd that uses the area where they they open up to drilling as part mm-hmm. of their calving grounds. There's mm-hmm. lots of migratory birds. You know, with climate change, 
the the effects of climate change are being felt in the Arctic quicker and more severe. Yeah. So there's there's just a lot of unknowns about really what the effects of drilling up there would be. Yeah. You know, I read about Anwar and possible drilling there, and a lot of people say this will fundamentally alter and change the Alaska that we know. Yeah. But it's changing right now from what we know. You know, last year was among the hottest years ever recorded, according to a federal government scientist. Even if drilling in Anwar doesn't happen, Alaska is already fundamentally changing in big ways. Knowing that, does it make Anwar drilling perhaps less actually big of a deal than it would be had the climate not been changing already? Um, I don't know. It's it's so hard to know just because there's some big question marks as far as how much oil is up there, how much of it is recoverable, how much makes economic sense. I don't know. Just because there's a, a big resource reserve available, does that mean we need to extract it immediately and get all of it as, as soon as possible? I, I don't know. Hmm. What are your plans for the weekend up there? What are you going to do fun? Oh, man, we've got a busy weekend. Um, yeah. Well, I'm starting the weekend early. I, I have to day off. So Lucky you. I have to do a weekend ahead. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, we have um, swim class with my two-year-old. Oh. I think we might also see how she takes the skis for the first time. Oh, my goodness. Whoa. That's a brave child. <laughs> Fun fact, I've never skied yeah. in my life, and I probably never mm-hmm. will. Same. Oh, you should try it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, hey, man, well, thanks for your time. Enjoy the swim lessons. I find that with kids, I enjoy watching them swim more if the floaties are cute, like fun, funky yeah. floaties <laughs> I generally approve of. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but have a great weekend, and thank you. Yeah, thank you. All right, man, take care. Thanks to Will for the call. Good luck with the swim lessons this weekend. Uh, listeners, we want to call you for this segment. Send me an email. Tell me what's going on where you live, and we could talk. I'm at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. I will never in my life ski. I can barely walk. <laughs> you are listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with Juana Summers, who covers politics for CNN. Tony Ramu covers tech for Recode. Thanks for being here, guys. Of course. Happy to. We're rocking and rolling. Now it's time for our main story. Uh, I want to play some tape of a video I saw this week. Uh, There's a school in Puerto Rico where these grade school young kids are celebrating when the power comes back on in their school. (laughs) And these kids are just running around joyous. And, you know... One, you have to admire the resilience of Puerto Ricans because I tell you what, if I didn't have power for several months, Mm -mm. I'd still be cursing you out the day that I got it back. Yeah. But they're so happy and grateful. And it would almost paint the picture and make you think that, like, all of the recovery is moving smoothly in one direction, but actually not quite. Um, As of this week, 80% of power on the island has come back, but that translates to just 60% of the island's customers having power. That's just a bit more than half, you know? Um, So we talked this week with NPR's Adrian Florido. He is actually in Puerto Rico for six months to report on the recovery there. And he told me about three things you are not hearing uh, about the recovery story here on the mainland. 
Adrian, hey, how are you? Hey, Sam, how are you? Good, man. I'm good. So you have been in Puerto Rico for how long now? I've been here about a little more than two weeks. Okay. A lot of that has been like getting settled in and dealing with logistics. And Yeah. What's uh, been your first impression of being there? Um, so here in, in San Juan, which is where I'm based, some parts of the city are just looking a lot better. Um, but that is a very actually limited area of, of San Juan. Yeah. Um, there's still parts of the city where you still see a lot of down power lines. There are still a lot of people who don't have any power. And across the island, that's true, too. Gotcha. So, Adrian, we wanted to ask you about three things people here on the mainland might not be hearing about Puerto Rico and its recovery. And this is, what, some hundred days after the storms there. And the first thing that you wanted to talk about is how there's actually not just one story of recovery. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. It's There's not one story, right? I mean... Like I said, here in San Juan, it's a big touristy area. This neighborhood is sort of getting itself back up. Mm -hmm. But there are places in the center of the island where people have been telling me that not a single house has had its power restored. Last week, I I drove out to a town called San Sebastián in the western part of the island. And uh, I met a family of two, an old woman and an old man, uh, who had been without power since Hurricane Maria. Four months. I mean, they've been eating mostly canned food. Hmm. They've been hoping that the woman, Rosa Cruz, that she doesn't have an asthma attack because she uses a nebulizer, which, you know, requires electricity. But yeah. they obviously can't plug it in. I was actually there when, when the power came back on. Oh, really? Wow. She's crying. I mean, you can you can imagine how we get frustrated when like our Netflix freezes, you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> what you hear in her voice, right, as she's as she's crying, it's just like the release of months worth of anxiety and sort of despair and almost sort of hopelessness that power is never going to come back. That's one thing I've heard from from some people who are especially from rural communities like hers. They could just feel completely forgotten. Yeah, you know it's thinking about power and not having power in Puerto Rico after the storm in the direct aftermath of the storm it was very easy to put all the blame on the storm itself because it was so massive yeah. but it seems as if as more time passes since the storm hit there's some blame being placed about why power isn't all the way back and the second big point that you wanted to make to us is that like this power itself has become political yeah, I mean, power is political, and in, in, in this case, in every sense of the word, right? I mean, electricity and the restor- the restoration of, of this electricity has become so, so highly politicized, which is one of the things that surprised me, you know, th- this dynamic that we were talking about earlier, which was that some places are getting their power back and some places are not, is, you know, creating tensions between different political parties and different regions of the island. And, and in fact, this week, the governor's mansion actually released a color-coded map of, of Puerto Rico, the island, huh. to basically prove that they weren't favoring politically friendly areas on the island. And, you know, one of the yeah. points that they make on this diagram is like, look, three out of the five municipalities that actually have the most work crews are governed by the opposition party. We're not favoring yeah. you know, our, 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 our political allies. Right? It's so crazy to hear you say this, because like as someone far away from Puerto Rico, when I hear that the governor is making a map to prove that he's not biased. Yeah. I'm like, you're not just using all of your time and effort to just get the power back? Has well, it devolved an- into this level of squabbling? 
Yeah, well, then that's that's another criticism too, right? Which is that all hands should be on deck for this effort. So mayors are starting to put more pressure on on the governor to basically make it easier for them to help restore power. What I forgot to mention earlier when we were listening to the tape of this um, older couple getting their power back is that mm-hmm. in that town, the reason that they got their power back was not because um, Brepa, the utility, or the Army Corps of Engineers, or FEMA uh, showed up really? and restored it. It was actually a crew of volunteers that the mayor of that town recruited to essentially start restoring that power to their own town. illegal and dangerous. It is not exactly legal, and it is certainly dangerous. Huh. So, I mean, sort of in keeping with the high sort of politicization of the power restoration, a bunch of mayors, you know, so Puerto Rico is, is divided into 78 municipalities. Each one has, has a mayor. 78, um, that's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, and so each one has a mayor and a bunch of mayors from the opposition party, the party that opposes the governor, organized a protest here in old San Juan. And, and a lot of just regular people came to the protest too. People from especially, especially rural communities. I spoke to a guy there from a, a community called um, Almirante Sur, which is a farm community not too far from from San Juan, actually. Mm-hmm. Everybody's in the dark. A lot of people that have been having the generators for eight hours, nine hours, and they're down to three and four hours because they cannot pay any more gas. You know, the, the gas bill is so expensive. There are a lot of older people sick in bed. You know, they have diabetes, which they need their medication to be in the refrigerators. Um, we really need help. In America. This is America. Yeah, Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of brings us to your third big point, uh, this push for Puerto Rican statehood. Right now, Puerto Rico is uh, territory and commonwealth, which is not exactly a state. Yeah, that's right. Uh, You know, I mean, this debate around statehood has always been really big. I mean, the two main political parties in Puerto Rico, the, the main thing that separates them is that one is favors statehood and, and, and one favors keeping Puerto Rico's status the way it currently is. But the governor is now making this renewed push for statehood, for admission into the union. And he's using the hurricane to sort of, you know, buttress his, his argument because he's, he's, he's basically holding up the government, the federal government's response to the hurricane and saying like, look, this is proof that the United States government considers us Puerto Ricans as second class citizens, right? If this had been, if we had been a U.S. state, we would have gotten so much more assistance. But is that true? Even if Puerto Rico were a state, do you think that Washington, D.C. and Americans writ large, that their perception of what Puerto Rico really is and how it connects to America, would that change? Oh, I mean, it would, it would, if it became a state, it would have to change, right? Okay. I mean, you're talking about, you know, adding two new senators to the Senate, and yeah. it actually upends the the political balance probably of Congress, which is one reason that mm. this effort by the governor is a long shot. Yeah. You know, it's it's really interesting to hear you talk about this new push for statehood from Puerto Rico. It's coming at a time when there are so many fewer Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico. I mean, we, we don't know exactly how many yet, but a lot of folks left after the storm not to return? I mean, some of them will, and some of them already have started coming back. A lot of them will not be coming back. You know, it's also worth noting that this, you know, it was not Hurricane Maria that started this huge sort of, you know, outflow of of Puerto Ricans. I mean, it's been, you know, Puerto Rico's economy has been in terrible shape for for more than a decade. And and for all of that time, a lot of Puerto Ricans, especially young Puerto Ricans, have been been leaving for the states. And so um, the hurricane only has accelerated that process. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. So you've told us a lot about what you've seen so far and what you've been watching. You're still there for a few months in Puerto Rico uh, Mm -hmm. for NPR. 
What are you going to be looking at going forward? So, I mean, I'm really interested in, obviously, the, the, the power restoration, yeah. the water restoration, you know, these basic services, because that's still an immediate need for so many people, right? I'm also interested in these broader kind of identity questions, these broader conversations about how this huge disaster has sort of fundamentally altered, you know, Puerto Ricans' perception both of themselves mm-hmm. and of the United States, of mm-hmm. their relationship to it, and vice versa. And then, you know, I'm also, like last night here in Old San Juan, the fiestas de, San, de la calle de San Sebastián began, which is this big annual Puerto Rican street festival, um, which celebrates the end of Christmas. Um, this weekend marks the end of the Christmas season here. And it's I was walking around Old San Juan last night, and there were just like tons of amazing bands and mm-hmm. traditional dance and, and song and <laughs> artists and creators and thinkers and innovators here in Puerto Rico. And so I also want to get at just the way that sort of everyday people's lives are, are trying to get back on track, you know? Yeah. Well, wishing you all the best out there, and I, I look forward to hearing more of your stories. Thanks, man. All right, man. Take care. You too, man. That was NPR's Adrian Florido. He's in Puerto Rico right now for a while, uh, so check out his reporting. And we're going to go out with some music that he recorded this week at that Christmas festival in Old San Juan. <laughs> going to take a quick break right here when we come back my favorite game who said that you guys ready for that right you're gonna win someone's gonna win no one's gonna win it's fine it's fine we will be right back hey y'all i have a very 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 special announcement for our listeners in the dc area dmv uh i'm gonna drum roll myself we are having our first live show next month. Live show, like live audience, us in the flesh with you talking about stuff. It's going to be February 22nd. It's going to be on a Thursday night, and we'll be taping our weekly wrap live. I've got some special surprise guests lined up. Uh, my favorite part is going to be who said that live. Think about it. It's going to be amazing. Um, come hang out with me if you're in the D.C. area. Uh, tickets will go on sale next week, Thursday, the 25th of January. The website is nprpresents.org. Also, for those of you on the Twitters and such, we'll have a special ticket giveaway. Uh, so stay tuned. Look out for hashtag IBAMLive on social media and come hang out with me at this live show. We may even get Aunt Betty there in the flesh. All right, we are back, and now it's time for a game that we call... Who said that? You guys, this is the best game because it's so simple. I share a quote from the week. You have to guess who said that. We'll do three of these. And fun fact, the winner gets absolutely nothing. Yay. <laughs> no participation trophies. Everybody's a winner. So. I'll give you a round of applause. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You ready? No. <laughs> we'll just do it. We're, we're going to go for it anyway. First quote. This is what's missing in the world. The sacrament of marriage. I hope this motivates couples to marry. Who said that? Probably the most famous man in the world. The Pope. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, yes. This, this was on the plane, right? There, yeah. there, there, there was a whole, yep. It was, was such, I'm somebody. like waiting for the screenplay. So these, <laughs> these two flight attendants on a flight out of Chile, uh, they got married on the plane by the Pope. According to CBS, the couple had planned to get married back in 2010, but there was a massive earthquake that literally collapsed their church 
on their wedding day. So they had a civil service but never had a church service in the Catholic Church. So they were never actually formally married in the eyes of the Catholic Church. Fast forward to this week. The Pope asked them, as I guess a Pope would do, are y'all married? (laughs) They, They told him their story. And the Pope was like, let's do it now right here. He married them on the plane. It's cheaper than Vegas. I feel like I got to redo my wedding now. Right? I would convert to the Catholic Church to have the Pope marry me on a plane. Also, I didn't know the Pope just, like, got on random flights. He is just like us. He's just like us. Next, oh, uh, while you're up one to zero. Hello. Oh. Tony, bring it. You can do this. I should get, like, 0.5 points for at least knowing the yes, facts. That's okay. That's true. Okay, 0.5 points. Next quote. Now we need the public's help. There is a good chance specimens will be located, and every single one is a winning extraterrestrial lottery ticket. Who said that? Even if you get close to the story it's about, that's fine, too. What? What happened this week that was extraterrestrial, y'all? What? I'm going to read it again. I cover Capitol Hill, but I didn't think it would. (laughs) I'm going to read it again. There is a good chance specimens will be located, and every single one is a winning extraterrestrial lottery ticket. What extraterrestrial event this week left specimens all on the ground? That sounds dirty. Oh. oh. <laughs> Can I just tell y'all? I have no idea. Yeah. That meteor in in Michigan. What? Y'all didn't hear? <laughs> <laughs> there was a meteor in Michigan. Google right now video of it. It's insane. There was this big flash of light as a meteor came down to Earth in Michigan State. It was so big, it registered 2.0 on the Richter scale. What? I'm a little embarrassed. Yeah. Y'all didn't see this? We're terrible journalists. Oh. <laughs> it was an amazing story. And so that quote was from Daryl Pitt. He is probably the funnest job of all time. He's a meteorite consultant for Christie's Auctions. He was looking what? for pieces of the meteorite to auction off. Of course they're trying to make money. <laughs> of course they are. It was a crazy story. All right, so no one gets that one. Yeah, we're doing, we're doing great. We're doing so great. <laughs> Next quote is... Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang. Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang. Gucci gang, Gucci. I could keep going, but you get it. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) You know the song, Gucci gang? Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang. This is a song, Gucci gang. Oh, I've I've missed this one. (laughs) Y'all have missed everything. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to be escorted out of the building. (laughs) So I am reading this quote not because of the song, which I find quite catchy, but this week, a YouTube celebrity named Graham the Christian, a.k.a. Graham Heavenrich, said the words Gucci gang one million times to raise money for charity. And like a sitting? He did. He just said he did it over several hours, over several days, and he actually has a video of the last like 15 minutes of him doing this, and it is hilarious. We have some take. Good gang, 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 Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang. So I love how you guys haven't heard the song Gucci Gang. It's by a rapper named Lil Pump. He has pink dreadlocks, one of the biggest rap songs in the country right now. I love it. But what rap song would you repeat a million times to raise money for charity? A million times? Bodak Yellow. Yeah. Same. I mean, same. My eight year old stepdaughter is super into Bodak Yellow right now. And so she's like, Can you play it on Spotify? And I turned on, I was like, 
What in the Lord's name are you listening to? Because I don't think I'm old enough to listen to this. I've reached that age where, like, all of the music, either I can't understand the words or the words are too nasty for me. Uh, I've reached that age. Just returning to a conversation y'all had on this podcast Uh a bit ago, the new, new Justin Timberlake out today (sighs) is is even even worse. worse. We need a whole episode on that one. I'll I'll do it. I'll come back. (laughs) A friend of mine called that new JT video the Kendall Jenner Pepsi ad of music videos. Pharrell has a lot to explain. Right? (laughs) He has a lot to explain. We believed in you, Pharrell. We believed (laughs) in you. Let us down. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, Graham the Christian, I'm rooting for you. Um, This game is over. Juana, you won, but... Here we go. <laughs> the moral of the story is that Capitol Hill reporters have no life. That's what <laughs> <zero>. <laughs> basically, basically. All right. Before we get to the final part of our show, I want to plug a podcast episode in our listeners' feeds from earlier this week. It posted on Tuesday. I had a chat with Kevin Young. He is poetry editor of The New Yorker, but he is also the author of a new book. It's called Bunk, and it's all about how fake news and hoaxes have been a part of American culture for a very, very long time. So this clip, he uh, draws some comparisons between P.T. Barnum of the Barnum and Bailey Circus. Uh, He compares him to Donald Trump and the fact that they're both a certain kind of showman. He was a showman. He uh, was a business person. He went bankrupt, uh, I think, three times. Mm. Um, But I, I also think that, you know, it's not an accident that Trump came out of reality shows in some Mm. sense. And I I think that the reality show as this place where reality is kind of contested and largely fake uh, really plays into this kind of showman appeal. Yeah. I like this conversation because it reminds us that as much as we think that Donald Trump is a one-off, he is actually the continuation or the re-entrenchment of a lot of themes that have been present in American culture and society for a very long time. Anyways, go back and check it out. It's good stuff. All right, now it is time to end the weekly wrap, as we always do. Uh, Every week we ask our listeners to send us the sound of their own voices telling me the best parts of their week, the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage them to brag. Let's play it now. Hi, Sam. My name is Olivia, and I'm calling from Ottawa, Canada. I live a few blocks and work a few blocks from opposite ends of the longest skating rink in the world, the Mm. Rideau Canal. And the best thing that happened to me this week is I brought my skates to work and skated the five or six kilometers home. And it was gorgeous and lightly snowing and it made me feel just so lucky to live in this beautiful city. That's so Canada. I love it. Skate to work. Hey Sam, this is Candice from Oxford, Mississippi. Hello. The best thing that happened to me this week was finding out the scholarship that I will be awarded will cover my full tuition in graduate school. Woo! Yeah. The best part of my week was when my eight-month-old daughter went all the way underwater at her swim lesson for the first time. Kids swimming. I love it. I'm finally feeling comfortable in my new job that I started at the beginning of the month. Awesome. After going through a rigorous interview process, I got a job as an active travel guide. All right. I adopted a rescue dog. Oh. His name's Leo. He's a Jack Russell Terrier and loves peanut butter just like me. (laughs) Hey, Sam. This is Shannon. Hello. The best thing that happened to me this week is after years of schooling and on-the-job training, I became a certified professional air traffic controller. Wow. Congrats. Hey, Sam. This week marks 34 weeks of marriage to the woman of my dreams, but only 10 weeks until we get to meet our son, Gabriel. Congrats. To celebrate, I took her on a date, and then, of course, to our childbirth class. (laughs) We're both crazy excited and crazy nervous to be responsible for another person, 
but we know that God's with us and it's going to be awesome. I'm excited for you guys too. Hi Sam, this is Bridget from Wisconsin and I just got out of a court hearing where a judge granted my wife equal parental rights (sighs) for our two children. Um, And we're so thrilled and excited because we had our son before gay marriage was legal here. Her name wasn't put on the birth certificate and... I'll never forget, he was screaming right after he was born, and as soon as he heard her voice, he calmed right down, because he knew his mother from every day before, and now we have the legal recognition of that, and it's just, Mm. it's such a joy to be recognized that way, and, and we're both just thrilled. Oh, man. Thanks. Thanks so much. And hope you have a great week. Bye. Who's chopping onions? Right? Right? Tissues. Special thanks to all the voices you heard there. Olivia, Candies, Molly, Jennifer, Landon, Lauren, Shannon, Brian, and Bridget. Congrats. As a reminder, here at the show, we always love pictures of babies and puppies. So uh, to those voices in there that had babies and puppies that they talked about this week, send us the photos. I want to see. Really. Um, In response to a bit of public shaming I did last week, we got an awful lot of these this week, and they were delightful. Much more than we could play, but please send them again sometime soon. Seriously. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Remember, you can let me know the best thing in your week at any point throughout the week. Record your voice. Send that file to me at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. We're going to go out on a happy day. Thank you guys for being here. Yeah, thanks Tony for Tony Rom covering Tech at Rico. Juana Summers covering politics at CNN. They both have to get back to their day jobs. I'm oh. so grateful they took some time with me today, though. Do we have to go back? Yeah, we'll no, stay here. Just stay here. Oh, this is the best part of the song. Let's just go watch Sister Act. Right? <laughs> the show was produced this week by Brent Bachman and Anjali Sastry. Steve Nelson is our director of programming, and we had editing help this week from Jeff Rogers. Our big boss, uh, who signs the checks, is vice president of programming here at NPR, Anya Grundman. Uh, thanks, thanks, thanks to everyone. Listeners, refresh your feed Tuesday morning. We have a really fascinating chat. I talked to Me Too with two rock stars, Yamish Alcindor of PBS and Nina Totenberg of our very own NPR. And let me tell you, they got some thoughts. Until then, thank you for listening. I hope you have an oh happy day and weekend. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. Oh,